0: It's great to see you guys tonight. I'm excited to preach tonight. I, I'm going to try to get through all of it. We'll see how we do. Have you ever been in a relationship where you were certain that you guys are on the same page? Like, oh, this girl's she's so into me. Your buddy's like, dude, I'm not, I'm not sure. No, 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 no. She's into me. Well, bro, like last night I saw, you know, her and Jimmy in the parking lot and they looked pretty close. You want to check your phone. You pull up your phone, you're like, and they're Facebook official? Seriously? And you've completely misjudged a relationship based upon what you thought they thought of you and vice versa? I'm not ashamed to say it's happened to me. Not recently, I've been married 12 years. (laughs) But this is the exact same dynamic that's present in the body of Christ. Where Jesus has called you something, made it explicitly clear in the scriptures, and we have no clue. And then we're operating in a prior identity, a prior mode. Well, What do you mean? Let me show it to you this way. John 15, 15. It says this. It says, No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. Instead, I have called you Friends. For everything that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. Many Christians have no idea what kind of relationship they have with Jesus. This might be the first time you've ever seen this passage. This is one of the most profound scriptures in all the Bible. that say that God is calling you friend. I have a, there's a tech guy that I like follow. And he like responded to my tweet like two weeks ago. I'm like, whew, man. <laughs> I got to reply back, you know, it's like, so, and and then we think here that the God of the universe calls you friend. Folks, the God of the universe calls you friend. He says, no longer do I call you slave, but I call you friend. How many know that if Jesus says that no longer do I call you slaves means at one point you were? Jesus introduces in John 15 this notion that no longer do I call you slaves, which means that at one point in time, we were. But he changes that relationship on his end. And the question is, will you change relationship on your end? Did you know that that relationship status changed? My relationship with God these days is so fun because it is a friendship. I've known Jesus for almost my entire life, but I've probably only been friends for about a handful of years. I got home late last night with the long work day and the wife wasn't feeling great. The kids are finally in bed. I'm like, I'm starving. So I'm like making a quesadilla. Totally gourmet here. And so I'd I'd written how my routine goes. I just, I peck on these sermons and messages all the time in the mornings. And so I had all my like references. I know where I was going and I'm like, like, okay, I know I'm talking on, you know, changing from slave to friend, but I'm like, Jesus, like, what does it mean to like go from slave to friend? And I'm like putting the quesadilla in the, the panini maker, and he's like, "Oh, it's just, you know, simply freedom, choice, and, and participation." I'm like, "Wait, what? <laughs> you know, it's, like it wasn't supposed to be that easy." Instantly, I'm just conversing with God, just throwing out the thought, and it's almost audible: freedom, choice, participation. And I already had my material. I'm usually, I don't care if it falls into the, you know, multiple points, whatever, and I, like, I had to, like, repeat it to myself because it was so instantaneous. And I was like, Lord, what does that mean? It's like freedom that I've made you powerful and free. You are free and not obligated in our relationship. He says I've made you a person of choice and that I've made you to have a will and have a choice in our relationship and participation that I've invited you to know what I'm doing and I desire you to participate So I'm going to go through those three tonight and how to go from slave to friend. Are you ready? The first one is freedom. A friend has freedom. God wants you to have freedom. It's important that you know that God has no desire to control you in your relationship with him. In fact, he gave you the opposite. He says, I give you self-control. I didn't give... Myself, a remote control for you. He's like, I've given you self-control. You take care of you, I'll take care of me. Let's have a relationship together that's based in freedom. And a slave, by its very definition, is someone who doesn't have control. No longer do I call you slave, but I've called you friend. God is not in the business of controlling you. He's in the business of liberating you so that you can actually experience freedom. A friend is free. God made us free, he wants us free, and friends are supposed to be free, but do we believe that we are actually free in our relationship with God? Why don't we look at some of the language that we typically use? Coming out of my playbook, I'm a slave to Christ, I was purchased. I was purchased, he must be a slave, right? Right? We have this guilt, like, oh, the, the blood of Jesus, like the worship songs that make you so, like, feel guilty about the precious blood of Jesus. like, oh, uh, you know. And you have, like, this, like, deep, heavy guilt. I was purchased by him. It's important that you know that you were purchased by him. You weren't purchased for him. You were purchased by him. You weren't purchased for him. There's a very big difference. What I mean Christ paid for all sins for all the world. 1 John 2 2. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins for the entire world. Christ paid the sins and the atonement for every single human being, regardless if they decided to know him. So in Christ, paid you your bought for price he bought your freedom he didn't buy your heart he gave your heart for you to give to him i'm just simply liberating you from sin and death but i choose to allow you to have a heart that says yes to me he saves your heart to give to him he paid the price that you would have a choice and the scriptures declare in black and white, Galatians 4, 7 says, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. How about other language like, working for the Lord. I love to meet people and they like, well, you know, how long have you known Jesus? And they'll say like, oh, I've been working for the Lord for 26 years, man. Oh, okay. Working for the Lord. It sounds tiring. <laughs> Sounds like, is that on your resume too? (laughs) Like, it's impressive. What, have you having like a job promotion title? Like, you know, what kind of promotions have been in there? And people believe that when they get saved, that they become God's employees. You aren't working for the Lord, folks. You're working with the Lord. God didn't save you because he was shy on the workforce. He wasn't like, oh man, there's so much work to do around here. Like, I better get some more people saved so I can have more help. How messed up would it be if I looked at my wife and like, wife, we've got three cars, a yard, leaves, and only two children. We should have more children to take care of more of the work that we have. So much work. We better have more children. But that's essentially what we believe when we, th- we think that we're going to get saved and then we're going to get put into work as if God needs our help. Which is completely message, a different message for another time. But 1 Corinthians 3.9, it, it tells us very clearly that we don't work for God, we work with God. It calls you a fellow worker, a co-worker, a co-laborer. God isn't outsourcing his work to you. He's working with you. God is working through you. Galatians 2.20 says, I no longer live, but Christ lives through me. Don't take responsibility and say, oh, I'm doing all this work and better send me a note, God, for thank you. No, he's like, he is working through you for everything you do. And oh, I'm just so tired. I have no more strength to serve the Lord. Well, that doesn't work either because Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not even your strength, is it? It's him living through you and Christ's strength empowering you. And you're not working for him, you're working with him. You're not employed by God, you are deployed with him. Are you guys okay? Is this making sense? God didn't save you. Say again? I forget what it was now. It was really good, wasn't it? You're not employed by God. You are deployed with him. There's a big difference there. When you're employed, you're like, on, go for me. Do that for me. When we are deployed together, we're in the trenches together. We are laboring together. Yeah. God didn't save you so that you could work with him. He didn't say, I've come to give you life and lots of work. He's like, no, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And you know how I love bad theology and worship songs? I got an oldie one for you guys tonight. I remember, like, maybe Fred will know. The Potter's Hand song, the Potter's Hand. So you guys know how it goes? It goes, take me, mold me, use me, walk me, right? Use me? Use me. We're like, God's like, oh, this is a great song. What? Use you? But we say this all the time. Like my college years, like, God, use me, use me. We just want to be used by you, God. As if we're like a rag. Needing to clean up something. It's messed up when you think about it. We're like saying, God, use me. It's, it's a very, like... How messed up is that that we think that? But it's our earnest prayer, God, use me, and we forget that God's in us. There's no such thing as him using you. Like people say, apart from God, I can't do anything. Well, did you know that when when it says that God came and dwelt among us, that you became the tabernacle? You are the dwelling place for God's presence, you. You. Christ's presence dwells in you. Apart from God, I can't do anything. Well, duh, like, he can't be removed from you. Of course, stop saying that. You're never apart from him. You're never apart from him. But we say, use me, God, but I, like, this is troubling language because I don't want to use my wife. Isn't that like offensive language? Honey, I want to use you. You know, it's like, I get slapped. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't want to use my kids. Scarlet, I'm so happy because I get to use you today. Like, that's not language a father embraces for his sons and daughters. Or how about this song? You guys all know this one. Another oldie. Lord, I give you my heart. Remember this one? I give you my soul. Come on, sing it. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, good job. Lord, have your way with me. What? Have your way with me? What kind of church is this? What kind of fathers? This, is, this doesn't sound like relationship. This sounds like law-breaking. If I were to go tell my wife, like, oh, after tonight's great, I'm going to have my way with someone, like, you would, like, call someone fast. <laughs> we have this language and we have this mentality that, that, you know, God says, I no longer call you slave, I call you friend. A friend isn't used. A friend isn't having your way with somebody else. I don't like to be used, do you? Have you ever felt, like, used? Certain people call me like, hey, I'm like connecting with you. So we have a software. Uh, I'm in software. I'm an entrepreneur in, in downtown. So our software processes $200 million a year. I get calls from credit card processors all the time. And I get friends who's like, I got a friend who's in credit card processing. They want to really meet you. I'm sure they do. Because they want to like be my friend, don't they? No, they don't. They're just like using me. It's not a virtue we embrace. We don't want to say that I'm going to have my way with anybody. That's not a virtue of relationship and friendship. But yet we embed them in our songs. We think we're being very virtuous in our worship. Have your way with me. God's like, this is a great song. What is that part? Now, we are the bride of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen, we're the bride of Christ. But it's important to know that this language, it sounds more like a mail-order bride of Christ to me. We're the bride of Christ. We're not a mail-order bride of Christ. Meaning we have a say, we have a relationship, we have a choice. God is, Christ is not coming back to marry a woman who's terrified, who's a slave, who has no choice in the relationship, is he? Confession time? This is really embarrassing. Should I? No? Okay. Maybe I shouldn't. Yes, I will. (laughs) Who grew up on um, Left Behind series? Terrible. (laughs) Just building the fear in you. So, growing up as a kid, like a virtue, like, I want to, you know, be a virgin on my wedding day. And my greatest fear was that the second coming of Christ would happen before I lost my virginity. (laughs) Not even kidding. (laughs) Greatest fear. And I was terrified of like the end times. I was completely terrified of the second coming of Christ. But the imagery of the second coming of Christ is Jesus coming to get his bride, right? Right? I'm no longer afraid of the second coming of Christ. Well, obviously. <laughs> Just... I'm no... <laughs> Reel us back in here. <laughs> theology, theology, theology. <clears throat> Righteous, holy, sanctified. Christ is returning for his bride, Amen. How likely do you think Christ is going to come back for a bride that's terrified of him? If it's your wedding day and your bride is locked up terrified of that day, are you going to be like, well, you signed up for this, let's go. No. Christ isn't interested in marrying a slave, a mail-order bride. He's interested in having a romance, an intimate relationship with a body that chooses him. If we want to bring the second coming of Christ, we need to get to the church and say, Christ, we're not afraid of you. We welcome you. We maybe like drop a little hanky, and like, you-hoo, or, you know, something like that. Where well, we're not afraid. We're not worried that he's going to have his way with us or that he's going to use us or that we're a slave to him. Those aren't things that welcome the bridegroom, is it? I wonder if Christ is waiting for us to get our relationship right to finally arrive and say, yeah, this is correct. I'm not going to come back and marry someone who's dysfunctional. (laughs) You guys okay? (laughs) These all, the, the virtues, the using you, having your way, slave, this Opportunistic mentality. We forget that 1 Corinthians 13 says God is not self serving, self seeking. Those are all attributes of a self serving God, a male chauvinist paradigm that we would never find ourselves in an alleyway with, with someone who had these virtues. But we portray Jesus in the exact opposite way that he defines his nature. Wouldn't that trouble you that you make yourself someone who has virtue and then people believe you to be the exact opposite? And it puts you in a position where you are the slave instead of the friend. Freedom in relationship requires that you want to, not that you have to. Let me say that again. Freedom in relationship requires that you want to, not that you have to. What makes your yes to God so powerful is that you also have a no. What makes your yes so powerful to God is that you actually have a no. What makes my wife's love for me so powerful is that yes, she said yes, but she also could have said no. Well, I mean, not really, I mean, like, look at me. I'm wait, why is that? Why are you laughing? She's not a mail-order bride. She's not required. I didn't buy her. I'm like, I have owned her for 12 years. Like, that is insane talk. I didn't purchase her. She chose me. I chose her. I chose her first a lot earlier than she chose me. Just following Christ's example all the way through our relationship. But she, in choosing me, this is something that describes something absolutely amazing in the friendship dynamic, and it's this, is that a friend has choice. A friend has choice. God wants you to have a choice. I can tell I'm upsetting some of you guys tonight. Relationship is only genuine when it's based on freedom and choice. Have you ever had someone that's like, well, maybe I have, like, they're legally required. We actually have people who are legally required to come here occasionally and help and we have to sign off on it. It's like, so glad you're here, you know. It's like, I love your service that's required by law. Thank you for that, you know. There's no authentic love and relationship versus people like Mike Malad, who's been serving for decades and years, like tearing down these curtains for decades, literally, I think now. And the relationship is authenticated by the freedom and the choice. I choose you because I wanted to choose you, not because I had to. I'm writing a book right now on the will of God, and one of the big revelations on is that the will of God is super simple, and a second part is that God completely wants you to have a will. One of the big aha moments in the will of God is that he wants you to have a will. Imagine that. We completely missed that part. And one of the amazing conclusions I've come to is that, that just because you, God desires that you have a will, doesn't mean that it doesn't line up with God's will. He wants you to have a will. was so, like, Well, doesn't he want my will to be his will? He does, but he wants you to have a will. Remember Jesus said when he came to us, I come not to do my will, but the will of my Father, right? Before the cross, Jesus' sweating blood, may this cup pass before me, but not my will, but your will. What does this mean? It means that the Father and Son had separate wills. How does that work? The Father and Son had separate wills. Jesus says, I'm not coming to do my will, but the will of my Father sent me. I mean that he identified I have a will that not all the time participates and wants to be in the will of the Father but I bring my will into submission into alignment with his will. But it's separate. I recently heard Chris Valatin talk on the same topic and it was, it was fantastic. And he talked about how um, God purposely planted two trees in the garden, right? Two trees, tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eat the good tree, don't eat the bad tree. Bad tree leads to death. Good tree leads to life. We've all ate of the good tree because we have eternal life, right? Some Christians think that the object is to just cut down the second tree. <laughs> just to get rid of all evil. Get rid of the second tree. But God planted two trees. Why? It's because he wanted you to have a choice. If we were to cut down the second tree, it's like, I choose you, God. Well, of course you choose me. There's no other option. Of course you choose me. There's no other option. He gave you a will, and then he gave you a choice. It's one thing to have a will. It's another thing to have choices. Having choices is the only thing that makes having a will mean something. My kids exercise like my son who's two. Oh, he's got a will of an ox. (laughs) But he hasn't yet been able to identify the choices or exercise his choices. So he doesn't get many. He has a will, but often doesn't have have as many choices. My four-year-old, she negotiates all day long. She wants to know, what are my choices? (laughs) It's one thing to have a will. It's another thing to have a choice. God says, eat the good tree, don't eat the bad tree. Why would God plant a bad tree if he didn't want us to eat it? Good question. The only way you can get a reward for doing the right thing is to have an opportunity to do the wrong thing. The only way you can get a reward to do the right thing is to have an opportunity to do the wrong thing. When Satan fell like lightning from heaven, why didn't God have him land on Mars instead of Earth? I mean, there wasn't a space issue at the time, I'm sure. There's plenty of room on Mars. But God wanted you to have a choice to choose him. You really can't choose him if he's the only option. And so God put the God of this world on earth along with the God of heaven on this earth. And he said, have a choice. This guy, he seems nice, he leads to death. But me, I'm awesome. Choose. I love in the scriptures, God says to Israel, choose today whom you'll serve I set before you life and death. Choose which you want. Over and over again the scriptures. Why to give you a choice? Because God wants to have a relationship with people and relationship with people requires you to have a choice. A slave has no freedom and has no choice. But why would God give you freedom and a choice? Because he wants you to participate. It's the last thing tonight. As a friend participates. Why did God give you freedom and a choice? It's because he wants you to participate. Have you ever had a relationship or friendship that was nearly impossible to get them to share or contribute? How's it going, man? How's your week? Good. Wasn't ready for follow-up yet. Um, do you anything fun? Nope. How's work? Good. Making this really hard. They ask no questions back. (laughs) Like, so excited about anything? Nope. (sighs) Like You're not making this easy. A dynamic relationship with anybody, spouse, boyfriend, brother, sister, father, child, God, requires participation. And Christians have no idea that God longs for you to participate with him. Psalm 37, 4, I love it, is delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, right? Desires are, but wait, I thought the heart was wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure, blah, 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 right? Well, which is it? I don't know. You've been given the mind of Christ and you've been given the spirit of revelation, so you get to figure it out. You just don't want to do the work, do you? You want the answer without the work of having a relationship that tells you, is this from God or is this from flesh? The heart is deceitful, which is it? God gives you the desires of his heart, which is it? I don't know. Ask. Have you thought about that? You've been given everything. Ask. Oftentimes, like, God, is this from you? He'll say, Does this sound like me? It's like, nope. There you go. Okay. Moving on. In order to tell whether it is God's voice or not, you have to be familiar with God's voice. Once heard someone's like, God's calling me to divorce my wife and go have an affair. I think you got the wrong frequency on that phone, pal. I don't think God is saying that. Sorry to burst it for you. But the things that are in our heart, God wants to explore with us. Think of this. What kind of dad would I be if I only had my kids do things that I want to do? What kind of husband would I be if we only went to the dirt bike motocross track? If the only area I participate with my wife, my kids, is to only do the things that I want, what kind of father am I? What kind of friend am I? One of the most common things I find myself asking my four-year-old is, what do you want to do? Intimacy draws participation. I want to know what my daughter wants to do. I care about it. And we're so busy trying to eliminate all desire, the fact that we have a desire, ooh, like kill it, die to self, crucify that desire. I'm a slave to Jesus, right? I'm like, Scarlett, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And most of the time I give it to her. The problem is that she wants to marry Maverick, our son right now. So I'm like trying to figure out how to like work this one through. You're not going to be able to get this one yet. But we forget that immediately after creation, after God created the heavens, that he looked to Adam and said, what do you want to name the animals? I made all of creation. And then God turns to Adam and is like, what do you want to call these things? I mean, look at that one. One of my favorite verses is John 15, 7. It says, if you abide in me, or if you remain in me, and my word, everyone say word. Word. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be granted. You guys know that passage? All right, that word, the word for word, it is not logos in Greek. Like Jesus says, believe my word in him who sent me and you will have eternal life, you'll be saved. It's not word logos, it's rhema. means living voice. I'm like on the hunt for like translational bias these days. This really should be translated, if you remain in, in me and my active living voice remains in you, ask whatever you want. I use this passage to motivate me to memorize scripture. was like, hey, I want what I want. I'm going to memorize the word. So the word is in me. And I'm totally bummed it doesn't mean that because i memorize memorized a lot of scripture. But what he's saying is that relationship is what produces the exchange. Our exchange of voices, opinions, us to engage together, that is what produces a relationship that allows me to trust you. What my daughter has, it's not that she's familiar, but I trust her. She can ask me almost anything she wants and I can trust her with it. It's not about, did you memorize a lot of scripture? Did you do really well to, you know, deserve your salvation? Did you feel really guilty the other day? Okay, good, then I'll give you that, you know, job promotion. God is looking for people who don't love the world to entrust the world to. I wish I could take credit for that. That's Bill Johnson. I'm going to give it to you one more time. God is looking for people who don't love the world to entrust the world to. I'm going to memorize scripture and then ask God for a Lamborghini. All right. it's not how it works. Relationship produces this exchange of desire. And when you have relationship with God, you stop trying to obey what is written and see into the heart of the Father. You begin to have freedom because what you come up with is actually in the Father's heart. A lot of things my daughter comes up with are things that are already in my heart. Are you guys doing okay? Can I give you a cool story? This is in the scriptures. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase it. The tabernacle of Moses. Moses goes. Shh. Sees the vision of the tabernacle. Right. It's got three rooms. He knows the colors. He knows the size. He knows the units. He knows the furniture. He knows everything about it. Okay. Three outer courts. You got the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. That was God's idea. God heard directly from Moses on the tabernacle and came down with the plans, right? God's idea. We're good? David built a tent, took the Ark of the Covenant, which is God's manifest presence in this like Indiana Jones, you know, two golden things, puts it in the center, and says, we're going to bring all the priests, and we're all going to go in there at once, and we're going to worship 24-7, seven days a week. Now this isn't, okay, first, this is explicitly prohibited in the scriptures and two, it's illegal and likely to get you killed. The tabernacle of Moses, one priest, one time a year could enter the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice on behalf of all priests, not, you know, two, three priests, one person once a year. And if they messed up, they could be struck dead in the Holy of Holies. Well, then they're really stuck because they can't go back for another 12 months to go get his body. So they tied a rope around the poor soul's waist and put bells on him that if the bells ever hit the ground or stop ringing, they know he's been struck dead and they can, like, pull him out, okay? Now you have David, a man after God's own heart, okay? And he creates a tent. So they're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in there and we're all going to go in together. Now, if you're the priest, you're like, uh, you go first. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Just, you know, I'm like, I'll catch up to you. I'll, I'll be in there in a second. Not only was it a different idea, this was completely illegal according to the Scriptures. And 2 Chronicles 6 says this because Solomon ended up building the temple and he, he recognizes this is David's idea. And it says this, and look at God's reply. This is 2 Chronicles 6, 7. It says, now it was in the heart, everyone say heart. It was in the heart of my father David, not in the heart of the father God. It says, it's in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. God looked at David and said, he knows my heart. Everyone else is trying to follow the rules. He knows my heart. And when all the priests went in there, the glory of the Lord filled the place and the cloud was so thick, they couldn't minister and worship. Wrong word, right heart, developed exactly what God wants. Acts chapter 15, James talks about, then the last days they'll resurrect, they'll recreate the uh, temple of David. And that you're the tabernacle now. David saw into the Father's heart that everyone would be able to seek the Lord. Everyone would be able to have the presence of God. And then when Jesus came, he's like, that was such a good idea, I'm gonna make the people the tabernacle. Let me end with this. Which are you? Are you friend or are you slave? Let me ask you a few questions. Do you feel obligated in your faith? Do you feel guilty if you didn't read the Bible? I went on vacation last week, didn't read one scripture, and it was great. Not because I didn't do it, because I begrudge it, because I have freedom in my relationship with God. I'm not stressing out. My relationship and good standing with God doesn't hinder on me reading or memorizing or writing. I gotta spend time with our kids in and, and my family. I gotta have Scarlet on the front of a surfboard. I was like, God, I'm gonna take some time with my family and sleep in and be with them. I have total freedom in my relationship with Christ. Some people don't feel that freedom. Some people are stressed out. I mean, you, you see, we have painting, we have people with flags, we have people some hands are up, some hands are folded, you know, like some people look happy, some people look terrified. The point is freedom. I'm not going to go wave a flag. That doesn't make me feel free. It makes me feel a little off. But you know what? There are many things that I do that you'd be like, that's bizarre, that you would never do. The point is freedom. I don't I love this stuff. Why? It's because I want people to have freedom in the relationship with Christ. Just because you have freedom, I don't need to police your freedom. I don't need to say, well, where's that in the scriptures? Well, actually, this stuff is all over the scriptures, but that's beside the point. The point is that you have freedom in Christ. You have utter, total freedom in your relationship with Christ. It says, for you are called to freedom. The one caveat says, but don't use your freedom to make a provision for the flesh. I think that's Romans 13, 14. You are called to freedom only Do not turn your notes. Sorry. Galatians 13, 14. You are called to freedom only Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Meaning, I'm not called to have my freedom or my relationship with Christ in the Playboy Mansion. I'm just going to say it. Probably not a boundary of my freedom. So, there's a diminishing return there, right? But the, the point is that God is so, so purposeful that you actually encounter and have a relationship with Him. And friendship is based on freedom that you feel free to encounter Him in the way that resonates with you because it's not a one size fits all. You have freedom when you have friendship with God. If you don't feel free, you might not be a friend. And the problem is on your end of the equation. Are you beating yourself up trying to figure out what God wants you to do? This is my, like, vexing issue. God, what do you want me to do? I never got a single answer. I don't know about you guys. Like, God, what do I want to do? And he's like, oh, well, simply just turn left here and do this. I never got an answer. And I thought it was God turning his back on me. Because I had done something wrong. Probably just before I asked him what he wants me to do. Or maybe six months prior. I don't know. But my mind worked that way. God, what do you want me to do? Hello? God, what do you want me to do? Hello? I now know that that silence was God's way of saying, What do you want to do? What do you want to do? We're in this together. I'm giving you the desires of your heart. What do you want to do? If you're beating yourself up trying to do something for God, you may not be his friend. You might be trying to do things that God's not asking you to do and you might be operating in a mode of relationship that he's like, this is actually dysfunctional for us. I need you to think and desire to dream with me. Alas, is there absolutely zero creativity in your relationship with God? Is it a one-way street with your prayers? Are your prayers more just thinly-veiled complaints? (laughs) God, this didn't happen. Do this for me. Thinly-veiled complaints. Start talking and start listening. If you want to have friendship with God, a friend that... Never asks questions and never listens is a, it's a rough friend to have. So God is asking, like, welcoming you into creativity. What do you want to do? I've given you freedom. I've given you choice. Do you want to go worship on the North Shore over a very shallow reef? Yes, I do. That's exactly what I want to do. And I got my butt beat out there last week. But you know what? I'm, like, paddling around. I'm, like wow, that sharp reef that could like kill me and that wave is enormous and God, you're amazing. And I had this like amazing time fearing for my life on the North Shore last week. <laughs> There's no highlight reel for my surfing last week. But I have that freedom and that creativity to say, God, you don't want my relationship to be one size fits all. Are you always doing God's ideas or do you have some of yours mixed in? If you're always doing God's ideas, I would suggest to you that you have a one-way friendship that God's actually asking you, what do you want to do? What can you come up with? You get to participate and have your ideas when you're a friend of God. Man, I could go on for hours. I think I'm going to hold it there. I love you guys. Eric's going to come up.